Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Indology of Podcast, in which we are going to talk about the 1971 war. Now, most of you probably already know about it. We all do. The humiliating defeat the Pakistani army suffered at the hands of the Indians. The 93,000 prisoners who were detained by India. And of course, that famous picture, that famous picture of General Niazi signing that surrender agreement that seems to pop up around this time of the year, every time on social media. But what we do not realize, what most of us do not realize, is there was a big game being played around the war. It wasn't just India versus Pakistan. It was a big geopolitical game, and some say that it was even an extension of the Cold War. So you had the Americans, the Chinese, the Europeans, the Arabs on one side, probably one of the rare instances of the recent history when we've seen the Americans and the Chinese on the same side, and on the other side, you had the Indians, with the bare minimum assistance by the Soviet Union. And yes, I mean that. The bare minimum assistance from the Soviet Union, as you'll see. When I reveal the facts to you, you will see what I mean. The main sources that I've used for this particular subject are the, the Blood Telegram, a fantastic book, uh, telling the story of the whole war from an American point of view. There is also Kissinger's White House Years, and uh, there is P. and Husker's book, Premonitions. A lot of information, a lot of inside information uh, for any who are interested in knowing more about this war. And I want to divide this whole subject into two episodes. This is going to be the first one in which I'm going to talk about the whole geopolitical game that was being played because although it might seem unimportant to those who are mostly interested in the whole action, it is very important to know these things because uh, one of the questions that I receive the most from people is that when something happens, they ask me, who do you think did it? Or who do you think is responsible? And I always say, we'll know about this in 20 years when somebody writes a book. Now, of course, most of us are not patient enough to wait 20 years. So I say that the best way to understand how things work today is to study what happened in the past. Because nations have a certain culture, nations do things in a certain manner. And uh, the way things happen in the corridors of power uh, remain more or less the same. So studying the past tells us a lot about what's happening right now. That is why I want to emphasize on this geopolitical aspect of the, the whole 71 war. And uh, this first episode is dedicated to the whole, the big game that was being played between the Russians, the Indians, the Americans, the Chinese, and the Arabs, and etc., etc. And in the second part, I'm going to talk about the actual war, uh, the strategies used by the Indian army, how they won the war, the horrible, horrible atrocities that the Pakistani army committed, the surrender, and of course, the aftermath of the war. So in this first episode, we'll see things from the point of view of Archer Blood who was the United States Consul General in Dhaka on the night of March 25th of 1971, when the Pakistani army had begun a relentless crackdown on Bengalis all across what was then known as East Pakistan and is today known as Bangladesh. Thousands of people were shot, bombed or burned to death in Dhaka alone. Archer Blood had spent that grim night on the roof of his official residence, watching as Tracer bullets lit up the sky, listening to the clattering machine guns and thumping tank guns. Many of the civilians facing the bullets were his professional colleagues. Some were his friends. And Archibald thought that it was his job to relay as much of this 
as he possibly could back to Washington. Witnessing one of the worst atrocities of the Cold War, Blood's consulate documented in horrific detail the slaughter of Bengali civilians, of newspaper office buildings in ruins, thatched roof villages in flames and, most of all, the specific targeting of Bengali Hindus. The US consulate gave detailed account of the killings at the Dhaka University. Professors had been hauled from their homes to be gunned down. The provost of the Hindu dormitory, a respected scholar of English, was dragged out of his residence and shot in the neck. Six other faculty members were reported killed by troops, and several more possibly dead. One American who had visited the campus said that students had been mowed down in their rooms, or as they fled, with the residence hall in flame and youths being machine-gunned. Archer Blood sent a cable to Washington. He wrote, At least two mass graves on campus. Stench terrible. There were 148 corpses in one of these mass graves, according to the workmen who were forced to dig them. An official in the Dhaka consulate estimated that at least 500 students had been killed in the first two days of the crackdown. None of them could fight back. After the massacre, an American eyewitness had seen an empty army truck arriving to get rid of the tightly packed pile of corpses. But Archer Blood knew that this was the last thing his superiors in Washington wanted to hear. Because Pakistan, a military dictatorship, was a friend of the US. Archer Blood detailed how Pakistan was using American weapons, tanks and jet fighters, gigantic troop transport airplanes, jeeps, guns and ammunition to crush the Bengalis. In one of the awkward alignments of the Cold War, President Richard Nixon had lined up the democratic United States with this authoritarian Pakistani government. American President Nixon and Henry Kissinger, the White House National Security Advisor, were driven not just by Cold War calculations, but a starkly personal and emotional hatred of India and Indians. Nixon enjoyed his friendship with Pakistan's military dictator, General Yahya Khan, who was also acting as a broker, to set up a top-secret meeting with China. The White House did not want to be seen as doing anything that might hint at the breakup of Pakistan, no matter what was happening to civilians in the east wing of Pakistan. The onslaught continued for months. Archer Blood stubbornly kept up his reporting, but his cables to Washington were met with a deafening silence. Neither was he allowed to protest to the Pakistani authorities. He intensified his dispatches, sending in a blistering cable which was tagged Selective Genocide, urging his bosses to speak out against the atrocities being committed by the Pakistani military. The White House staff passed up all these messages to Kissinger, who ignored it. Then on April 6th, two weeks into the slaughter, Archer Blood and his entire American consulate sent in a telegram formally declaring their strong dissent. That cable, probably the most radical rejection of US policy ever, sent by its own diplomats, blasted the United States for silence in the face of atrocities, for not denouncing the quashing of democracy, and for showing moral bankruptcy in the face of a genocide. The slaughter of Hindus in what is now Bangladesh stands as one of the worst of recent history. Pakistan's slaughter of its Bengalis in 1971 was different in the sense that here, the United States was allied with the killers, with the bad guys. The White House was actively and knowingly supporting a murderous regime at many of the most crucial moments. There was no question about whether the United States should intervene. It was already intervening 
but on behalf of a military dictatorship that was decimating its own people. This stands as one of the worst moments of moral blindness in US foreign policy. Pakistan's crackdown on the Bengalis was not a routine or a small-scale killing. It was not something that could be dismissed as business as usual. It was a colossal and systematic onslaught. Midway through the bloodshed, both the Central Intelligence Agency and the State Department estimated that about 200,000 people had been killed. Many more would perish, cut down by the Pakistani forces or dying in droves in miserable refugee camps. Edward Kennedy said that the story of East Bengal will surely be written as one of the greatest nightmares of modern times. But in the depths of the Cold War, Nixon and Kissinger were unyielding in their support for Pakistan. The ongoing Bengali slaughter led within a few months to a major war between Pakistan and India. In that time, the White House had every opportunity to grasp how bad these atrocities were. There were sober misgivings voiced in the White House and thunderous protests from the State Department and its emissaries in Delhi and Dhaka, with Asha Blood being the loudest voice of them all. But throughout it all, from the outbreak of civil war to the Bengali massacres to Pakistan's crushing defeat by the Indian military, Nixon and Kissinger, unfaced by detailed knowledge of the massacres, stood shamelessly behind Pakistan. As its most important international backer, the United States had great influence over Pakistan. But at almost every turning point in the crisis, Nixon and Kissinger failed to use that leverage to avert disaster. Before the shooting started, they consciously decided not to warn Pakistan's military chiefs against using violence on their own population. They did not urge caution or impose conditions that might have discouraged the Pakistani military government from butchering its own citizenry. They did not threaten the loss of US support or even sanctions if Pakistan took the wrong course. The Americans allowed the Pakistani army to sweep aside the results of Pakistan's first truly free and fair democratic election without even suggesting that the military strongmen try to work out a power-sharing deal with the Bengali leadership that had won the vote. They did not ask that Pakistan refrain from use, using US weapons to slaughter civilians, even though that could have impeded the military's rampage and might have deterred the Pakistani army. There was no public condemnation, not even a private threat of it from the President, the Secretary of State or any other senior officials. The administration almost entirely contented itself with making gentle token suggestion behind closed doors. And even that only after months into the violence when it became clear that India was on the brink of attacking Pakistan. The slaughter happened at the same time that Nixon and Kissinger were planning their opening to China. They needed a secret channel to China, which they found in the Pakistani general Yahya Khan, who was on warm terms with both the United States and the Chinese. While the Pakistani government was killing Bengalis, it was also carrying covert messages back and forth from Washington to Beijing. Nixon and Kissinger, always sympathetic to the Pakistanis, were not going to condemn them while they were making themselves so useful. So the Bengalis became collateral damage for realigning the global balance of power. In the bargain, Nixon and Kissinger also turned their backs on India. The strategic opening to one Asian titan meant a closing to another. In fact, one of the very first things that the United States did with its new relationship with Mao's China was to secretly ask it to mobilize troops to threaten democratic India in defense of Pakistan. It was left to India, which did not have the option of ignoring the slaughter of the Bengalis, to stop it. The biggest democracy in the world was entwined with the tragedy next door in countless ways. 
from its own shocked Bengali population to its bitter confrontation with Pakistan. Knowing full well that they were acting illegally, the Americans provided weapons to Pakistan, which was under a U.S. arms embargo, by the way. As recently declassified documents and transcripts have proven, Nixon and Kissinger approved a covert supply of sophisticated U.S. fighter airplanes through Jordan and Iran. Despite explicit and emphatic warnings from both the State Department and the Defense Department that such arms transfer to Pakistan were illegal under the American law, even Kissinger made it clear to the president that they were both breaking the law. Nixon went ahead anyways. The Indians were overwhelmingly outraged by the atrocities in East Pakistan. There was a remarkable consensus. Pakistan was behaving horrifically. The Bengalis were in the right. India had to act in the defense of democracy and innocent lives. Almost the entire Indian political spectrum, from Hindu nationalists to socialists and communists on the left, they all lined up behind the Bengalis. These persecuted foreigners were not Indian citizens, but they were not altogether foreign. Bengalis were a familiar part of the Indian national scene, and India's own Bengali population rallied to their brethren. Across the country, newspapers ran furious editorials condemning Pakistan, and urging the Indian government to recognize Bangladesh's independence. Perhaps the most striking Indian policy was something that it did not do. India did not stop masses of Bengali refugees from flooding into India. Unimaginably huge numbers of Bengalis escaped into safety on Indian soil, eventually totaling as much as 10 million, five times the number of people displaced in Bosnia in the 90s. The needs of this new desperate population were far beyond the capacities of the feeble governments of India's border states and Indira Gandhi's government at the centre. But at that overcharged moment, the Indian public would have found it hard to accept the sight of its own soldiers and border troops opening fire to keep out these desperate and terrified people. As payment for this kindness, India found itself crushed under the unsustainable burden of one of the biggest refugee flows in world history. Just 24 years after, another huge transfer of forced population that the Indians, especially the Hindus and Sikhs, had seen during the partition. India was left alone. Despite pleas to the rest of the world, India was given only a tiny amount of money to cope with the refugees. China was bitterly hostile, the United States only somewhat less so. The non-aligned movement was of no help. Egypt, Saudi Arabia and other Arab states were fiercely pro-Pakistan. Even the United Nations was tilted towards Pakistan. India was forced into a tighter alignment with the Soviet Union, to the delight of the leftists around Indira Gandhi, but to the dismay of many other Indians. For Pakistan, the crisis of 1971 is mourned as a supreme national trauma, and the bloodletting of 1971 marks an important chapter of a US embrace of military dictators at their worst. Because it was Nixon's embrace of Yahya Khan that helped to define a U.S. relationship with Pakistan based overwhelmingly on the military. There was a strong mutual dislike between President Nixon and Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. He didn't like her father either, but she had an extraordinary ability to get under his skin. In 1967, when Nixon was out of power and was planning his way back into the White House, he had met with Indira on a visit to Delhi. But when he called on the new Prime Minister at her house, she had seemed very bored, despite the short duration of their meeting. After about 20 minutes of a very strained chit-chat, she asked one of her aides in Hindi how much longer this was going to take. 
As president, Nixon kept up his personalized approach to foreign policy. He trusted his own impressions of world leaders. He once said that her father was just as bad as she is. Thus, his first visit to India as the President of the United States was very chilly and very strained. President Nixon liked very few people, and few people liked him. But he did like General Yahya Khan. Over and over, he spoke of Yahya with an uncharacteristic blend of admiration. Nixon did travel a lot, and on his trips, he always remembered who was treating him nicely, especially when his political career looked like it might be over. He remembered the places and the people who gave him a good reception. And he did get that from the Pakistanis and Yahya Khan. So he remembered them very gratefully. So he had a very soft spot for the Pakistani military officers, especially Yahya Khan. And Yahya had become the president of Pakistan in March 1969 by pushing aside yet another general and imposing martial law. Yahya Khan had a habit of drinking early and drinking often. About him, Bhutto said that he starts with a cognac for breakfast and continues drinking throughout the day. And by night, he was often in a sodden state. Kissinger eventually concluded that Yahya was a moron. Towards the end of the war, the White House staff had warned Kissinger that an isolated Yahya was no longer calling the shots with his own military. He had no idea what was happening in East Pakistan, where the army had nearly complete control. Yahya might listen to the US suggestions, Kissinger was told, but the army did not implement them. But Nixon and Kissinger had bet everything on Yahya, though they eventually realized that he was being swept away by the events. In August of 1971, while planning the White House's calendar of upcoming summits for December, Nixon was asked if a summit with Yahya Khan was still on the schedule. No, Nixon said after an awkward pause. Kissinger added that I don't think he'll be in office by then. Indira, however, gave no such love to Nixon. She refused to reply to two letters of Nixon, the second of which was personally handed to her by Kissinger when he visited Delhi. And presidents of the United States are usually accustomed to getting their email answered a little more punctually. So later when she went to meet Nixon in Washington, she was given a similar treatment when she was made to wait for an hour to meet with Nixon, who just pretended that he did not know that she had been kept waiting. But Nixon felt that he had to show her that he was in control. Through the 71 war, Nixon was very eager for signs of any Indian atrocities. He was known to say things like, are they raping? Are they murdering? Aren't the Indians killing a lot of people? Even when his own officials denied him any such evidence, he persisted. At one point, he got furious, telling Kissinger that, Henry, I just want the Indians to look bad. I want them to look bad for bombing that orphanage. He was referring to an attack on an orphanage that had actually been done by a Pakistani airplane. Towards the end, Nixon and Kissinger unleashed the full power of the White House to brand the war to American citizens as an act of Indian aggression. And they did this in any way that they could. From Kissinger's background briefings, through the vice president, the White House flags, cabinet secretaries, trade department officials and surrogates in Congress, they got the word out. Nixon told Kissinger, let the Indians squeal. Nixon fumed, I want a public relations program developed to piss on the Indians. I want to piss on them for their responsibility. I want the Indians blamed for this. You know what I mean. We can't let these goddamn sanctimonious Indians get away with this. Driven by this campaign, the American public's mood swung against India. And Americans came to sympathize somewhat more with Pakistan than India. Most Americans simply tuned out. 
not caring about either of the sides. This hatred for India and love for Pakistan would be a feature of the Nixon White House throughout the 71 war campaign. Nixon was firm that he never wanted to say a word against Yahya Khan. When the war started, Nixon and Kissinger, without knowing the facts, were immediately convinced that India had started the war. They snapped into a state of self-righteousness, convinced that they and Pakistan had made Herculean efforts to avoid war while India had done everything wrong. But even if the Pakistanis had actually struck first, Kissinger forgivingly said that the US line should be that they had been provoked into aggression. It's like Finland attacking Russia, he said. Nixon immediately ordered a stop to military and economic aid to India. He ordered Kissinger to scour every option to punish that country. Nixon wanted to do lasting damage by cutting off aid to India for a long time. And by the end, both Nixon and Kissinger only regretted not tilting more towards Pakistan. In the privacy of the Oval Office, Nixon said that if they are not going to have a famine, the last thing they need is another war. Let the goddamn Indians fight a war. And Kissinger agreed. They are the most aggressive goddamn people around there. They are such bastards. Nixon replied, the Indians need, what they really need is a mass famine. At another meeting, Nixon said that it was vital that Pakistan not be embarrassed at this point. Because the Indians are a slippery, treacherous people. They would like nothing better than to use this tragedy to destroy Pakistan. Kissinger, in a Situation Room meeting, warned that the Indians should be under no illusion that if they go to war, they will be unshirted hell to pay. Even till the end of the war, Kissinger remained convinced that India had meant to knock over West Pakistan. Nixon cribbed that most people were ready to stand by and let India bomb Karachi. And Kissinger reaffirmed, they really are bastards. While the Americans were functioning from a place of personal hatred towards Indira Gandhi and the Indians, they had a lot of love for Pakistan. And not just for Yahya Khan, but diplomatically also. In the Situation Room, General William Westmoreland, the US Army Chief of Staff, had briefed Kissinger that India would trounce Pakistan if war started. There was plenty of other warning as well. Kissinger was alerted that there was almost no chance of Pakistan holding together. And yet, Nixon put his trust in Yahya Khan. He said, I feel that anything that can be done to maintain Pakistan as a viable country is extremely important. There are good people, strong people like Yahya Khan, are responsible leaders. But soon after, when Kissinger mentioned that there was a problem coming with the separation of East Pakistan, the president was surprised, he said. They want to be separated? While Nixon was in love with Yahya Khan, Kissinger was convinced that the Pakistani dictator was an idiot. After his return from Pakistan, Kissinger said that it's my impression that Yahya and his group would never win any prizes for high IQs or for the subtlety of their political comprehension. They are loyal, blunt soldiers. But I think that they have a real intellectual problem in understanding why East Pakistan should not be a part of West Pakistan. Kissinger later said that fundamentally Yahya was oblivious to his perils and unprepared to face necessities. He and his colleagues did not feel that India was planning war. And if so, they were convinced that they would win. When I asked them as tactfully as I could about the Indian advantage in numbers and equipment, Yahya Khan and his colleagues answered with bravado about the historic superiority of Muslim fighters. And the funny thing is that we see the same thing today. 
in so many of the videos I have seen that Pakistanis say it all the time that one Muslim soldier is equal to 10 Hindu soldiers. The same thing is said again and again by the Pakistani army and which just baffles me. If such was the case, why would you lose every single war that you started with India? Don't they learn anything from history? Or is it true what Kissinger said? That the Pakistanis would never win any prizes for high IQs? Meanwhile, the American Consul General in Dhaka, Archer Blood, he was left alone. He was repeatedly sending reports of violence against Bengalis to the White House. He later said that the silence from Washington was deafening. Less importance was being given to our reporting than to the Pakistani claims that little more was involved than a police action to round up some bad elements led astray by India. Essentially, Nixon chose to believe the lies of the Pakistanis over the facts being reported by his own diplomats. Even when Archer Blood laid the basic responsibility for the horrors squarely on the Pakistani military, Kissinger kept looking for massacres committed by Bengalis to generate excuses that would exonerate Yahya Khan. Because it would have been convenient for Nixon and Kissinger to be able to say that, hey, both sides were equally rotten. Even relatively minor insults to Pakistan's sovereignty were too much for Nixon when it was suggested that US should make Yahya Khan promise that US food aid would get to rural Bengalis, Kissinger lost his mind. And Nixon, his initial impulse was not to help the refugees at all. He said on record that someone is saying we are contemplating sending aid to help the East Pakistani refugees. I hope to hell we are not, because Yaya would resent such a relief. Later, when Kissinger informed him that the US State Department had a whole list of needling, nasty little things that they want to do to West Pakistan, Nixon got angry. He said, Not a goddamn thing. I will not allow it. And not just that, they also gave financial aid to the Pakistanis. Kissinger pressured Robert McNamara, the former Defense Secretary, who was then running the World Bank, to help keep Yaya in power by providing international economic support. He made the same pitch to John Connolly, who was Nixon's Treasury Secretary. In return, Pakistan provided them a communication back channel to China. Yaya Khan, Pakistan's military dictator, would personally deliver White House notes to the Chinese ambassador in Islamabad, which were then bound directly for Beijing and arrived there just a day later. He even arranged a secret trip for Kissinger to China, which the Pakistanis boasted of as a major achievement. About this secret trip, Kissinger later said that the trip was fascinating. Yaya hasn't had such fun since the last Hindu massacre. Yes, he said that. But as China and the US resumed direct channels of communication, the usefulness of Yaya and the Pakistanis expired. There was an interesting conversation between Henry Kissinger and Shou Enlai, the Chinese premier, that shows how irrelevant Pakistan had suddenly become. The Chinese premier told Kissinger that we have a saying in China that one shouldn't break the bridge after crossing it. Kissinger got the hint. He told Chou Enlai that we might exchange some communications through Yaya Khan for politeness. Still, both the sides knew that Yaya and the Pakistanis had served their purpose. Kissinger continued, There are just some things which we don't want to say through friends, no matter how trustworthy. And Joe and Lai replied, We'll send nothing substantive through him. So one can see that the habit of playing the middlemen that the Pakistanis have is nothing new. It has been there since pretty much the inception of this state. And... Uh, the Chinese and the Americans, just to appease the Pakistanis, like someone who would appease a little child, 
agreed to send some harmless, useless messages through them, just so that the Pakistanis would feel that they're being useful. The Pakistanis also provided daily commercial PIA flights to rescue Americans in Dhaka, taking them to safety in Tehran or in Bangkok. Each day, between 3 and 10 PIA airplanes, under the security of the Pakistani Air Force, landed in Dhaka from West Pakistan. They were loaded with fresh troops in civilian clothes, who would then walk into an adjacent hangar to change into military uniforms. Once the Pakistani army troops had gotten off the passenger planes, then the Americans, who were to be rescued, they would watch the soldiers debark, then they would be ushered onto the same planes. The Americans knew what was happening. They saw the Pakistani soldiers coming off passenger planes in civilian clothing, go off into a hangar, change into a military uniform, and on those same planes, the Americans would be ushered out of Bangladesh. Yahya Khan later reminded Nixon about this, implying that the United States still owed him for it. Years later, Nixon still deplored that the United States had not managed to be generous enough to Yahya Khan. By the end, as Pakistan started losing, Kissinger demanded that Nixon stand firm. He built up a doomsday scenario. Kissinger said, If the outcome of this is that Pakistan is swallowed by India, China is destroyed, defeated and humiliated by the Soviet Union, it will be a change in the world balance of power of such magnitude that the United States' security would be damaged for decades and maybe forever. This induced in Nixon a doomsday vision of a solitary United States isolated against a Soviet-dominated world. Kissinger continued, You'll have the Soviet Union with 800 million Chinese, 600 million Indians, the balance of Southeast Asia terrorized, the Japanese immobile, the Europeans of course will suck after them, and the United States, the only one, will have maybe parts of Latin America and who knows what else. We have to put our forces in. We may even have to give them bombing assistance. The way the Americans dealt with the Indians, on the other hand, was exactly the opposite of how they mollycoddled the Pakistanis. In a meeting with Foreign Minister Swaran Singh, Kissinger had said that the United States would take the gravest view of any unprovoked Chinese aggression against India. When Swaran Singh asked for a pledge that the United States would provide military equipment to India if China attacked, he got no answer. Later the same day, Kissinger made a firm pledge to Defence Minister Jagjeevan Ram that we would take a very grave view of any Chinese move against India. We will leave them in no doubt. The Defence Minister was of course delighted. For the Indians, this was very reassuring, especially when Kissinger reiterated his promise to Indira Gandhi that America would under no circumstances allow any outside power to pressurize or threaten India. The delighted Indian government eagerly seized on Kissinger's multiple promises of US support for India against any Chinese aggression. The Indians, though, did not realize that exactly the opposite was happening. Nixon and Kissinger were going to try and use China to balance against India. Because just five months later, Kissinger encouraged China to move its troops against India. Because by the September of 1971, the Americans had decided that China's enduring animosity towards India would make for a very useful tool in US diplomacy. Kissinger had much more in mind than that. He directed the White House and State Department staffs that if China provoked border incidents, then they should leave India to its fate. In the Oval Office, Kissinger told Nixon that if we could shock the Indians, we would. 
because our judgment is that Chinese will almost certainly come at the Indians. President Nixon immediately got excited at the idea. The new relationship of the Americans with the Chinese had brought radical possibilities. They realized that they could use China to scare India out of attacking Pakistan. Or if war started, they could ask China to move its troops to the Indian border, threatening to embroil India in a war against two enemies at once. Kissinger warmed up to the idea of unleashing China against India because he was impressed by his first-hand experience of Chinese Premier Chu Enlai's hatred for India. Kissinger believed that the only way that India could lose the war with Pakistan would be if China joined in. The US National Security Advisor had an odd way of lying, even when he did not need to. He assured Gandhi that it was the assessment of all the US specialists in March that it was impossible that force would be used by the West Pakistani government in East Pakistan. But this was false, because there were American experts in that very room, in that meeting, who had warned him of an imminent crackdown early in March. Thus, the Indians had no diplomatic support from the Americans, the administration or the media. And on top of that, Indira Gandhi also disliked the Western press. And like her father, she was terribly sensitive to foreign press criticism. Sidney Schoenberg, who interviewed her once for the New York Times, remembers that it wasn't much of an interview. She was always wary of how she was going to be quoted. His coverage of India's support for the Mukti Bayani discomforted the government, with a senior Indian diplomat wondering how a well-meaning correspondent like Schoenberg could be tackled, if at all. Schoenberg later said that the interesting thing about embarrassing India is that they don't throw you out, unlike Pakistan, but they think about it at times. An unexpected advantage that the Indians gained was in the form of the Concert for Bangladesh, organized by former Beatle guitarist George Harrison and Pandit Ravi Shankar at Madison Square Garden in the New York City. It was featuring all the top stars of that time, most prominently Bob Dylan. The concert was a huge success, raising more than $243,000, but also a whole lot of awareness about the cause of the Bangladeshi people. The Indian government was, of course, delighted by this unexpected windfall, but the Pakistanis were furious. Pakistan's military regime was completely flummoxed by the power of rock and roll. A Pakistani official warned all Pakistani embassies about an anti-Pakistan gramophone record entitled Bangladesh, which was sung by George Harrison, a member of the Beatles trio. Yes, for some reason, the Pakistanis made the four Beatles into a trio. The Pakistanis banned the album in Pakistan, but they also ordered all the Pakistani embassies all over the world to somehow try and prevent the broadcast of this music worldwide. Which, of course, wasn't possible, but, you know, to the Pakistanis who control all the press and everything in the country so easily, this would perhaps <laughs> would have been a bit weird. Another party that stood against India firmly was the Chinese. Zhou Enlai, China's premier, vowed to support Pakistan against Indian expansionists and lodged a formal protest against India's, what he said was, gross interference in internal affairs of Pakistan. China's state media accused India of fomenting a war and preventing the refugees from returning to East Pakistan. Yes, according to, <laughs> according to the Chinese, the Indians were preventing the Hindu Bengalis who were being prosecuted by the Pakistani army from returning to East Pakistan. Wow. But the Indians had realized that the Chinese game was deeper than that. P. N. Haksar, Indira Gandhi's top advisor, he wrote, China, as usual, is playing a double-faced game by giving public support to West Pakistan, but working secretly 
to increase its political influence in East Pakistan by sponsoring radical pro-China factions among the East Bengalis. India's intelligence services had reported to Indira Gandhi that the Naxalites, the Maoist radicals, were active in the refugee camps, trying to spark a revolution. The Americans, on the other hand, did not want their new friends, the Chinese, to see them doing anything except supporting Pakistan. Sam Hoskinson, a staffer of Kissinger in Asia, he said that without the secret overtures to China, Nixon and Kissinger might have taken a different stance on Pakistan. It was a China-first policy. Everything else was secondary. Kissinger regularly reminded the Chinese Premier that the United States, despite a pro-Indian sentiment in the Congress, was the only major Western power that had not condemned Pakistan's atrocities against civilians. The Americans were desperate to prove that they always stood behind their allies. But if the United States' commitment to Pakistan was unwavering, the Chinese' actual support to the Pakistanis was a bit wobbly. When the Aya Khan sent Zulfikar Ali Bhutto to Beijing to firm up the Chinese support, Bhutto got a very frosty reception, and the Chinese surprised him by urging him to avoid war. This was not the kind of direct intervention that the Pakistanis or even Nixon and Kissinger were hoping for. The CIA reckoned that there was a little chance that Chinese would do much to bail out Pakistan in a war. So while Kissinger was happy at US intelligence reports that truckloads of military supplies were flowing from China into West Pakistan, the CIA insisted that China was keeping its head down, neither prepared for nor capable of a full-scale war against India. China was not actually going to move its troops. The Chinese leadership knew that picking a fight with the Soviet Union's friend meant exposing themselves to a million Soviet soldiers on their own borders. And India was confident enough that China would not attack. So much so that the Indians moved most of its Himalayan mountain divisions from the Chinese frontier to face the Pakistanis instead. In reality, both the US and China used the Pakistanis to run messages between them and when the Pakistanis had outlived their usefulness, their importance magically diminished. Again, most of the support that the Pakistanis received thereafter was mostly because Nixon and Kissinger were desperate to show the Chinese the reliability of the United States as an ally through thick and thin. Winston Lord, who was also Kissinger's special assistant, said that there was quite a bit of briefing of the Chinese about what we were doing. The way we communicated was through the United Nations missions in New York and through Paris. The White House sent secret letters through a trusted military attaché in Paris who would hand them over to the Chinese ambassador over there. Kissinger later told the Chinese ambassador in Paris that I have come to France secretly 11 times by five different methods. I'm going to write a detective story when I'm through. The other major governments of the world were waiting and watching. Britain, France, Germany and Japan. They all saw the atrocities on Bangladeshi population, the most affected being the Hindus, as an internal matter for Pakistan. P.N. Huxer, Indira Gandhi's advisor, told her that some of the big powers, especially the United States, are very keen that the United Nations should be so involved largely to prevent activities of Bangladeshi freedom fighters. All our diplomatic efforts are directed towards ensuring that neither the Security Council nor the UN High Commission for Refugees becomes a break on the struggle of the people of East Bengal for their democratic rights and liberties. So India turned to the Soviet Union, its only friend on the Security Council, to scuttle these proposed United Nations observers. Thanks to the Soviet clout, the proposal for observers quietly expired. Admiral Meher Roy of the Indian Navy said, 
Mrs. Gandhi went around the world saying that this is a genocide, but nobody listened to her. Austria was promoting Kurt Waldheim, a diplomat hiding his Nazi past, to be the next Secretary General of the United Nations and did not want to alienate the Muslim bloc. Britain still wanted to keep Pakistan united. Indira Gandhi fared slightly better than France, where President George Pompidou's government saw the independence of Bangladesh as inevitable. In Washington, the Americans were usually dismissive of the United Nations, but once the war started, they suddenly discovered the usefulness of the world organization as a weapon against India. Because by getting the United Nations Security Council to demand pulling back all the troops, they could deny India its battlefield. As Nixon correctly said, these Indians, they are susceptible to the world public opinion crap. The Americans knew that Indians care about what the world thinks of them, and they tried to use that against us. The next day, December the 7th, India faced a global verdict on the war. In a crushingly one-sided tally, 104 countries voted for a resolution calling for a ceasefire and withdrawal. India only won backing from the Soviet Union, a few Soviet satrapies and satellites, and neighboring little Bhutan, to which Nixon reacted, Bhutan is in a country for Christ's sake. Just 11 votes, a tenth of what the United States and China together mustered. The Americans got strong support through Africa and through the Arab countries. India was abandoned by the non-aligned movement, including Yugoslavia, Egypt, Ghana and Indonesia. Although in the early days, Yugoslavia had shown some support to India, with Joseph Tito visiting India and issuing a heartening statement. The stance of the Muslim countries was no different. Saudi Arabia strongly supported Pakistan. It urged the United States to affirm that Pakistan had the right to deal with its internal problem however it saw fit. Bad as this was, Egypt was probably the only pro-Indian country in the Arab world. But Saudi Arabia, Libya and Kuwait all pressured Egypt to be pro-Pakistan. There was one surprising minor success though, Israel. India did not have diplomatic relations with the Israelis and P.N. Huxer and many Indian leaders were very cold towards Israel. But in July, Golda Meir, Israel's Prime Minister, secretly got an Israeli arms manufacturer to provide India with some mortars and ammunition, along with a few instructors. And even later, when Huxer pressed Israel for support, Meyer promised to continue helping out. But what was the stance of the Soviet Union? One of the first acts of the Soviets on April the 3rd was when they sent Yahya Khan a stinging message calling for an end to the killing and repression and urging respect for the results of a democratic election. This did not have much of an impact. Indra Gandhi then sent Indian ambassador Durga Prasad Dhar to press Alexei Kosygin, the Soviet premier, to ask for any and all kinds of help. India was hoping for a Soviet approval of a more aggressive action, possibly even war. But the Soviet Union refused. They asked India to avoid war. Greatly disappointed, the Indians, especially Huxar and Dhar, were crestfallen. Later, India badgered the Soviet Union for more military assistance, such as the Soviet T-55 battle tanks, the armoured personnel carriers and artillery rounds. Huxar bluntly told Gandhi of the urgency of their defence needs. So in late April, Indira Gandhi begged Kosygin for a long list of military supplies, including bombers that could hit targets all across Pakistan. Once again, the Soviet support was limited. They only offered some supersonic but unreliable Tu-22s, which were so unacceptable to the Indian Air Force that India rejected them. Dhar was mortified at the snub. Nor did the Soviet Union come through in helping the refugees. While they did make some donations, 
they would end up being heavily outspent by the United States. After Kissinger had a breakthrough visit to China and the chance of the United States and the Chinese lining up together against India were looking realistic, Dhar once again raced from India back to Moscow to finalize a Indo-Soviet friendship treaty, which probably looked good to the Soviets also, considering that they also would not like China to be a good friend of uh, the Americans. The most crucial point of the treaty was an article declaring that if either country was attacked, the other would consult to remove such a threat and take appropriate effective measures to ensure peace and the security of their countries. This stopped short of an actual promise of defense. But as the Indian embassy in Moscow proudly noted, it was widely seen as a deterrent warning to both China and to Pakistan. The Soviets did, however, veto three times in favor of India and against the US-led Western bloc at the UN. Most important of which was the third one when the Soviet Union shielded India with its veto, knocking down another Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal. This angered Nixon so much that he threatened to scrap the upcoming Soviet summit. So although today many Indians remember the Soviet Union's support in the time of need too fondly, the Soviet leadership in reality was pretty unenthusiastic about India's war. Soviet Union had even advised India to be satisfied with liberating Bangladesh and not to seize any West Pakistani territory, especially Pak-occupied Kashmir. As Haksar anxiously wrote to Indira Gandhi, the Soviets believed that the United States was firmly committed to defend West Pakistan's territorial integrity. Because for Kissinger, this was not just a local clash, but a Cold War contest of wills against the Soviet Union. He said very clearly that it wasn't just an India-Pakistan war. In his words, it was a Indian-Soviet collusion raping a friend of ours. This was it for the first episode of the 1971 War Special. I hope you guys liked it. I hope you guys learned some new information that you did not know previously. And uh, this, I am pretty certain, will also give you a very good insight on how things work in the geopolitical circles of power, how the Americans behave, how the Russians behave, the Chinese, and of course, the absolute utter uselessness of the United Nations. If you like this episode, please follow me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and I'm also on all these social media platforms. The name is Indologia, I-N-D-O-L-O-G-I-A. You can find me on Instagram, on WhatsApp, Telegram, Twitter. I'm all over the place. I'll be back again next week with the second episode of this uh, 71 War special, where we're going to talk about the action, the wins of the Indian Army, their strategies, and the genocide of the Hindu Bengali victims. Till the next time I see you, Jai Hind, Vande Matram.